This morning we're going to be in Exodus chapters 11 and 12, talking about the Passover this morning. Exodus chapters 11 and 12. We're going to be reading primarily in those two chapters, but we'll jump around a couple of other places as well. Looking at the Passover and how it points to Christ. This Sunday is what we call Palm Sunday. Now, it's a Sunday which we read about before the crucifixion when Jesus has his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He comes riding on a young donkey, and as he's coming into town, uh, the people who have followed him are laying down palm branches, worshiping, shouting Hosanna, uh, talking about how good God is, recognizing Jesus the man fully God as the coming Messiah. It's a great time of celebration. And the reason why there's so many people in Jerusalem is because it is the beginning of what we now call the Holy Week. And so you might have heard this week referred to as Holy Week. There are several markers throughout the week that many churches celebrate with different services. We'll have our Easter Sunday celebration next week, which culminates Holy Week. But throughout the week, we see... Uh, we see events take place like, uh, for instance, on Thursday. A lot of churches have what they call a Monday Thursday service where they celebrate the beginning of the Lord's Supper. And then we see Friday is Good Friday. We actually do participate in a community Good Friday service here in Robinson. Uh, this particular year, it's taking place at Highland Avenue Baptist Church. Now, I'll be participating with a prayer in that. Several of our local pastors will uh, be participating. Now, we celebrate the death of Christ on Good Friday. And then, of course, Sunday, it all culminates with a celebration of Easter, where we gather and worship God for His resurrection. What exactly is happening this Holy Week? Why, why are there so many people in Jerusalem? Why is there so much celebration? And the answer is, everyone has come and gathered to celebrate Passover. Really, you can't celebrate Easter without understanding Passover. A lot of times we have little inside jokes that we share with each other that, that you really only get the joke if, if you're in a conversation. I got a gift this morning that plays in perfectly to that from someone in our small group Sunday school class. She gave me a little plaque that just said, my garden isn't dead, it's sleeping. Now for you, you think that's kind of mean, but no, the inside joke is I kill every plant I've ever had, ever. And so she gave me this little plaque as a little joke that her and I know that I kill everything in my garden. Sometimes you have to know the backstory to understand the end result. And really, to understand the crucifixion of Christ in the Easter story, you have to have the background of the Passover. You need to understand what's going on with this Passover event. Really, the Passover, for us as Christians, ended at the crucifixion. And now instead of celebrating a Passover meal, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ as the new Passover lamb, as the permanent and eternal Passover lamb. So I want to look at Exodus chapters 11 and 12 this morning and get the background to this Easter week, this Holy Week, what's happening at Passover and how that relates to Jesus Christ. Let's begin in Exodus chapter 11. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word or follow along on the screen. Exodus chapter 11, verse 1, The Lord says to Moses, Yet one uh, plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Begins with God telling Moses, there is a tenth plague I'm about to bring, and this one is going to get the job done. Israel had been slaves in Egypt for, for centuries, 
And now at this point, God is ready to release them through one last plague. Skip down to verse 4 and 5. Moses said, thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn cattle. This is the tenth plague. God is wiping out the firstborn in Egypt. Question, just to make sure we can put ourselves in Scripture. I always feel like it's more real when we can put ourselves in what's going on. Raise your hand if you are a firstborn son, the oldest son in your family. Just so you know, even if you're an only son, that's you, if you are the firstborn son in your family, even if you have an older sister, the firstborn son, you are the recipient of this plague this morning. Right? Let's put ourselves in Scripture for a minute. You just got the black X on your chest that the angel of death is coming to, to kill all the firstborn, from the greatest to the least. So I just did a quick glance. There's probably about, I don't know, 15 of us that now have a big black mark on our chest. This is the plague that God is using to send the nation of Israel out. Skip down to verse 7. Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So there is a distinction we'll talk about as well in this plague, that God will spare some. There will be a distinctive mark. Look down in verse 10. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So the story is set up for us. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, all of the firstborn are going to die. God is going to wipe out about uh, roughly thousands and thousands of, of young men, older men as well. If you're the firstborn, God is coming with a, a plague of death. And in doing so, he's going to have you let our people go. And Pharaoh's response is a hardening of heart, ascending Moses away. Pharaoh literally says, bring on the plague. Our gods of Egypt can handle it. This is the table that is set for the Passover of Christ. That there is a black mark on every single house in Egypt. Two real things that I want us to focus on as we, we think about what's going on in this passage. Two, two main points that we need to dwell on and understand to get the full grasp of what God is doing at the Passover. The, the first is this. God distinguishes between the faithful and the unfaithful. In this plague, God is drawing a line between those who are faithful and those who are unfaithful. By the way, he does this all throughout the Bible, and we see it glaringly here. Uh, read with me again in verse 7. God draws this line. Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, neither man or beast, that you may know the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. It's important for us to recognize today that what God does is he draws a line between faithful and unfaithful. If you don't believe that this is true, Jesus says almost this exact same phrase in Matthew chapter 25. 
this drawing of a line, this distinction, and this separating between those who are faithful and those who aren't. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 33 says this, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and the angels with Him, then He'll sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, those are the faithful ones, and the goats on His left, those who are unfaithful. This is a theme all throughout Scripture. God separates the faithful from the unfaithful, and He does it here in this tenth plague. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is, who are the faithful in Egypt, and who are the unfaithful in Egypt? And if we're putting ourselves in the story, how do I get on the right side? Right? How do I go from the unfaithful and make sure I'm in the faithful category? By the way, this is kind of a, a life question to ask. God, what do you require of me to be found faithful? So who is it that God says the angel of death is coming for? Who is it that are the unfaithful? Which households are the unfaithful people in Egypt? Well, God makes it very clear to Moses, and he reiterates it in verse 5. Read this. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There's a few words if you write in your Bible or take notes that you can underline. You can underline words like every in that verse, every firstborn in the land of Egypt. Go down a little bit further, and, and you can underline the word all the firstborn of the cattle. Literally, he says, Pharaoh's household is not exempt from God's separation. Pharaoh's household will experience the angel of death as having a firstborn child and even his servant, the highest in Egypt and the lowest in Egypt. Even the servant, the handmaid who's behind the, the handmill, the slave girl who's behind the handmill, she will experience the same punishment. And it's not just enough that the people experience it, the beasts of the field. Get this, the angel of death did not just come to, to households, he came to, to livestock. The firstborn male of all the cattle experienced this wrath of God. So who are the unfaithful? The unfaithful is everyone in the land of Egypt. Notice this would include the people of Israel. This is important to note. The people of Israel are not pardoned from this coming angel of death. Every, all, from the greatest to the least, all of Egypt will experience the angel of death. Now God's going to draw a line of faithful and unfaithful, but in verse 5, he just wants us to know, everyone begins in the unfaithful category. In the Old Testament, I, I start to read more and more of, of the Old Testament. I'm an Old Testament guy. We tend to think of the nation of Israel as the good guys and everyone else as the bad guys. And it makes sense because the whole book is about the main characters of this nation of Israel, this Hebrew people, and they're the, the heroes and the victors. They're the ones that we cheer for and we root for. But as you read the Bible, as you read the Old Testament, let me tell you, the people of Israel are not the good guys. <laughs> not even close. Matter of fact, if you read the Old Testament, here's the picture you get from the very beginning of the nation of Israel. Abraham, the father of the whole nation. Abraham doesn't trust God enough when God makes him a promise, and he sleeps with his servant's wife, or, or his wife's servant, so that he can have a child on his own. Then, 
A little bit later on, you find that Abraham and his son Isaac both have such high character that when they're afraid for their own lives, they tell people in the land around them that their wife is their sister so that if they want to take her as their own wife, it will spare Abraham and Isaac. They'll survive, and, and their, their wives can now be with someone else to save their own skin. This is the, the character of the people of Israel. How about Isaac's son, Jacob? Does he have high character? Nope. The name Jacob literally means grasping at the heel, and it figuratively means a deceiver, one who usurps authority. That's what the name Jacob means. The name Jacob means deceiver, and this is characterized all throughout his life. He tricks his brother into getting the, the birthright. Now, Jacob is very manipulative with people around him. It comes back to bite him because his father-in-law manipulates him. And there's all of this chaos and manipulation in the story of Jacob in the beginnings of the nation of Israel. Fast forward to Jacob's sons. He has ultimately 12 of them, but at the time when he's just got uh, about 10, one of them is the favorite of the deceiver father, Jacob. And so the other brothers hate him enough that they... They sell him into slavery. Actually, first they decide they're going to kill him, but because they're such good guys, they think, let's not kill him, let's make money off of him. Let's sell him into slavery so he would leave. Are you getting to paint a picture of the nation of Israel being good or wicked? This is the beginnings of this nation. Then they go to Egypt. They're there for, for several hundred years, and they have a new leader rise up, this man named Moses. How are we introduced to Moses as an adult? We're introduced to Moses as an adult when he gets angry with one of the Egyptian guards and murders him. This is who Moses, the leader here, is of the nation of Israel. This is our hero. A little bit later, we, we find that God still spares them. After this story, they get out of Egypt and they get to a mountain where Moses goes up to talk to God. While Moses is up talking to God on behalf of the people, what is the rest of the nation doing? These are your heroes. They're impatient, they're tired of waiting on Moses to come down, and they pool all of their gold together and make a calf as an idol and start worshiping an idol. This is our heroes in the Old Testament. It goes on and it gets worse and worse and worse. Eventually, God looks at the nation of Israel and says, You once were my bride. Oh, but that I would divorce you and rid you of my presence. How wicked and evil the nation of Israel has become. Israel is compared in the book of Hosea to an unfaithful wife, one who repeatedly leaves over and over and over again. And God, being the faithful husband, has to pursue and reconcile. The entire Old Testament is a picture not of Israel being the heroes, but of Israel being exceedingly wicked and deserving of the angel of death. Can we all understand that the nation of Israel was deserving of the angel of death? The good news is that's the Old Testament. The New Testament's got to be better, right? In the New Testament, people finally figure it out. Go ahead and read the Gospels and tell me what your, your impression of the disciples in the Gospels are. But what you'll find is they're really fumbling, bumbling idiots. It's true, right? It's, it's them arguing over who can be the greatest in the kingdom. Them going, let me sit at your right hand. Let my brother sit at your left. As a matter of fact, we're too afraid to ask. Let me send my mommy to ask you that I can sit at your right and your left hand, right? If this is the picture we have. We have a picture of them doing great things. Jesus says, come walk on the water. And while they're walking on the water, Jesus is right there. They're so afraid of the water underneath their feet. Peter looks down and he begins to sink. This is the faith that they have. Jesus repeatedly tells them stories and they come back and go, Jesus, we have no idea what that means. Explain it to me like I'm five. Can you help me break it down? I don't get it. Over and over and over again. 
Jesus tells them, I have to die for your sins. And yet when they come to arrest him, they're pulling their swords off, ready to fight, stopping the will of God if they can. You know, at one point, Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. This is the picture of the heroes we have in the Gospels. Thankfully, all of that gets fixed after the Gospels, because in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes, we have the Spirit now to guide us, and you would think the church moving forward is a picture of what God intended it to be, except most of the letters that Paul writes to the churches are correcting wild, inappropriate sins in the churches. At one point, he has to literally write, go rebuke this person because they're sleeping with their stepmom. Can you tell them to stop doing that? I mean, this is the picture we have of people in the New Testament. Over and over and over again, the people we read in Scripture we think to be heroes, and God is telling us over and over and over again, they're unfaithful. They're not the people that we celebrate. The story of the Bible is not the good versus the bad in Israel versus the world or the church versus the world. It's God is the only one good, and people are unfaithful over and over and over and over again. And God separates the faithful from the unfaithful. Where do we start? If God draws the line today, where do we stand? All of us begin just like the nation of Israel, just like the disciples, just like the New Testament church. We all begin as unfaithful. When God separates us, we're all on one side. We all deserve the angel of death. We are the goats on the left of Christ. So what hope is there? In the Passover, it's not just a celebration that God sends wrath. It's a, it's a celebration of salvation. How do we move from unfaithful to faithful is what makes the house faithful. We read the Hebrew people are faithful. They, they get it right, but they're not faithful because of what they do. They're faithful because of their obedience to God. They weren't good people. They weren't more spiritual than the Egyptians. As a matter of fact, you might argue that the Egyptians were more spiritual people than the Israelites. The Israelites had one God, and they often rebelled against him. The, the nation of Egypt had hundreds of gods, and they would fall down just to try to worship pro appropriately. <laughs> no, the nation of Israel was not good or more spiritual or more religious. They weren't more brave or bold. We find them being cowards. Moses himself says, I can't do this. Send someone else to do it. Right? Their leader, who is supposed to be this this Force moving forward says, God, anybody else, I'll take anybody else. They weren't even always obedient. They were often rebellious. But when God said, this is what it means to be faithful in this instance, during Passover, they get it right. God gives them very specific instructions, very specific things that the nation of Israel must do. If you really want to delve into the, the specifics of Exodus chapter 12, I would challenge you to do that. There's a lot in here we can't hit today. But I do want to read verses 3 through 11, just so you can see how detailed God's instructions are. Just start taking note and start asking yourself of all the list of things they're going to need to do to get this Passover right. How can they be faithful? Look at me in Exodus 12, verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if a household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats." 
and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Very specific. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat it uh, they shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts and you shall let none of it remain until the morning in other words eat it all have a feast and anything that does remain until morning you shall burn in this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. You start taking some notes. Okay, how am I going to get this right? Got to get the right age, the right gender of your animal. You've got to make sure you have enough, but not too much. You've got to cook it a certain way, and you've got to eat it with certain foods. You've got to do it at a certain time, and you all have to do it together. You've got to do this strange thing of painting blood on your doorway. You've, you've got to have all of these details right to be faithful. God comes to Israel and says, there's a specific manner in which you are to come to me. The truth is, obedience is simple, but it's not easy. What they needed to do was spelled out. There was no question. There was a lot of work. Obedience to Christ is always plain, but sometimes it's difficult to follow. God doesn't say, do something like this, kind of cook it this way. He says, do this specifically. The truth is, we cannot come to God on our own terms. We cannot come to God in a way that we think is appropriate. God says, there's a way you approach me. There's a way you act in obedience. We can go back just last week to our message. We talked about different sacrifices. How did it work when Cain came to God in his own way? Cain and Abel offering their sacrifices offered two different types of sacrifice, but what Cain was found unfaithful in was not the content of his sacrifice, but his heart. He came to God in an unworthy manner, and God rejects his sacrifice no we can't come to God on our own terms we can't come to God and say Lord I'm here but I'm doing A, B, C and D we can't come to God and say I know you require this of me but I'm holding this back God speaks and gives us specific instructions he calls us to act and move so what detailed instructions moving from Passover to Christ does God give us to be found faithful what is the list? So if this was just for one instance, what is the list that God gives me to do in order to be found faithful? In order to be on the right hand of Christ and not the left? How can I be found faithful in Christ? Well, Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, a very detailed set of instructions in one verse. Romans 10, 9 says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved this is your detailed instruction for your passover this morning two things paul says you must do two things only one is you confess that jesus is lord that is you're in control of all things you know what's best and i don't i yield myself to you because you're the creator of everything and i'm going to trust what you have to say you must confess jesus as lord and the second thing it says is you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That is, that he died for your sins, 
and that he overcame that punishment for sin through his resurrection. You have to come and say, God, only you can take away my sins. Only you can be my Savior. Two things. Acknowledging and confessing Jesus as Lord and acknowledging and confessing Jesus as Savior. You can't come to God on your own terms. You can't come to God and say, take away my sin, but I'm going to live my own life. It doesn't work that way. You can't come to God and say, I'll follow your rules, but I'm going to hold on to my sin and my unforgiveness. It doesn't work that way. God gives us very specific instructions. You confess me as Lord and Savior. You either give yourself to me or you don't. I wonder what would happen in the Passover if, if say, the, the people of Israel decided to sacrifice a bird instead of a sheep or a goat. I wonder what would have happened if, if they decided to take just a little bit of blood and sprinkle it instead of painting their doorpost. I wonder what would have happened if they decided to boil it or eat the meat raw instead of cooking it the way God called them to cook it. And the truth is, I know exactly what would have happened in all of these instances. Well, we can zoom out and see exactly what God would have done. There's a reason why you needed a large animal. I had to feed your whole house. You cook a bird, you guys are going to be hungry for the trip that's coming up. God knows what he's doing. Trust him. I know what God is doing when he, he says you must not boil it or you must not eat it raw. God is wanting you to consume it and consume it quickly. This was not a good meal they ate. It was a roasted, burnt goat. This is what the people ate. It was not, don't worry about trying to make it perfect. You cook it and cook it as quickly as you can. It's going to take too long to boil that thing. You're cooking that thing whole. You're not, you're not boiling that in one day. You're not getting that. Not only that, but because you're cooking it whole, if you boil it, it's going to contaminate the water because you're not cleaning it out. It's going to be unhealthy. God knows what he's doing. God says, roast it. Just set it on fire and get it cooked through and stomach it down. Can you imagine what would happen if God said, eat it with unleavened bread, and someone thought, you know, I'll put a little yeast in there. I want to see, wait for my bread to rise. They'd be in the wilderness hungry, right? They'd be going, God, I don't have my bread. It's still back in Egypt, and I didn't get a chance to bake it. So when God says do it, we don't always know why. I'm sure the people thought, got to be a whole lot better without the bitter herbs, right? I'd much rather have it with something sweet, maybe some sauce I can dip it in. We can't come to Jesus and say, we want to do it on our own terms. God, I, I want to follow you, but I want to do it my way. God knows the reasons behind. He calls us to do what he calls us to do. You either surrender your life to him as Lord, or you don't. You either find yourself faithful, or you don't. And what God calls us to through the Passover lamb of Jesus Christ is to confess him as Lord in control of all things. To surrender our sins to him and beg for his forgiveness knowing that his death on a cross pays for them. The lamb is what makes the house faithful. Not their works, not their actions, but their obedience to sacrifice the lamb. This morning, as we think about the Passover and we think about our own lives, what are you withholding from God? Are you finding yourself faithful? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life, the one who knows what's best? Have you surrendered your life to him and, and begged and pleaded for forgiveness of sins, knowing full well that his death on a cross will pay for them? This morning, are you found faithful? Not just in Egypt, but in Robinson, Illinois, not just in Passover, but in the New Testament celebration of Holy Week. Are you obedient to Christ in salvation? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the Lamb. Lord, I thank you that, that we're able to see in this sacrifice your desire 
to cover our sins. Remove them completely. Father, I thank you that not only in Egypt did you save the people, but here in 2021, Lord, you save us. Lord, we ask forgiveness because we want to come to you in our own methods, in our own ways. We want to come to you on our own terms. Lord, help us to surrender to you as Savior and Lord. Lord, if there's someone in here this morning who's holding back, someone in here this morning who's saying, I, I want forgiveness, but I don't want to surrender my life. Lord, convict their hearts to, to let go and trust. Father, we thank you for your complete and total salvation, even though we're unfaithful. God, you are faithful. We thank you for the lamb. It's in your name we pray. Amen.